Welcome to Reconciliation Roundtable, a new podcast where we discuss building bridges of understanding across religious and political difference. I'm your host, Mark Beckwith, retired Bishop of the Diocese of Newark in the Episcopal Church. There are forces and voices in our increasingly polarized world that want us to view each other in the issues of the day in a binary way, this or that, good or bad. I want to invite you on a journey beyond the safety of our silos and our egos to the soul, where we have the opportunity to see things differently. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find more content like this, please visit my website at www.markbeckwith.net, where you can listen to more episodes, read my weekly blog, and sign up to get weekly reflections in your inbox. I also explore the themes of this podcast further in my book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. My guest today, David Blankenborn, is a friend of mine who has an extraordinary passion for building bridges of understanding. David is a civic career organizer, Lincoln scholar, and co-founder of Braver Angels, a grassroots movement to restore civic trust in the United States. He is also the author of Fatherless Marriage, The Future of Marriage, and In Search of Braver Angels, Getting Along Together in Troubled Times. Having known David for a long time, I expected this to be a fascinating and passionate conversation, and it definitely is. More so, I've never found him to hold back or shy away from being vulnerable about his journey and the mistakes he's made along the way, and he definitely doesn't today. Our conversation touches on aspects of finding one's calling and identity, how diverse relationships can challenge our assumptions in beautiful ways, the dangers of grounding our identities in political categories or labels, and the importance of seeing each other as neighbors rather than as enemies. David's story of transformation and the insights that he's gained along the way will leave you with a lot to consider. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce my friend and today's guest, David Blankenhorn. And I'd like to begin knowing that you were born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, and how formative was that for you in terms of the energy, commitment, and passion that you've carried forward in your life? Well, I was born in 1955. So, you know, when I was a kid, that was the blooming really, of the Southern Civil Rights Movement. So I was a kid when that, all that was taking place. And my family was split, even along the lines of my parents, you know, some pro-civil rights and some pro-segregation, you know, in a state that was overwhelmingly pro-segregation among whites. So that was a very, very formative experience for me. I think it shaped most of the rest for me. That and my family and church was the shaping thing for me, I think. And I remember you telling me that in high school, you developed a network of students working across racial difference, as I remember that correctly. Yeah, the schools were desegregated in 1970, you know, 15 years after Brown versus Board of Education legally outlawed segregation, but the Mississippi schools were not desegregated until 1970. And with some other students, we formed something called Mississippi Community Service Corps, where black and white students, more or less equal numbers, 
would volunteer as tutors for the younger kids in the area of reading. So it was a twofold idea. One was to allow the black and white high school students a chance to work together, but also to try to help the younger kids. So that was more or less what I thought about every day for two years. That was it for me. That's why I stopped playing football. Broke my father's heart nearly. You created that process, that network. I did. And I was modeling it on a, an organization whose people really influenced me, the Catholic Archdiocese of Philadelphia. I'm not Catholic and I don't live in Philadelphia, but I got to know these people and they had something called Community Service Corps. And I was very inspired by it. I got to spend a few, couple of months up there one summer and uh, the summer before we started the Mississippi Project. And they were really the inspiration. It really changed my life in lots of ways. First time I'd ever been to a big city, northern city. And uh, yeah, I came back from that. And I uh, just couldn't think about anything else except doing this. So that experience in Philadelphia, it sounds like generated a passion and a commitment in you. Well, I got to actually do the thing. You know, I was a tutor in one of their programs that they ran. It was very meaningful to me. And also, it was just beautiful. I mean, I was kind of their token Protestant, but they let me in, you know, there was a real culture. It was a kind of a neighborhood-based, ethnic, Catholic, working-class, parish-based culture. That's, and I loved it. It's brand new to me. I loved it. They welcomed me. I lived in that community that summer, and um, they had mass every day in the, their office, and they let me be a part of it. And it was beautiful. It was all about just trying to do good in the world. It just completely won me over. Just just like, I can't tell you the way in which that changed my life. My guess is that you had some of those feelings earlier on, but the experience in Philadelphia was the catalyst to sort of bring it forward and, and yeah. create your commitment from yeah. that moment on. Yeah. I was 16 the summer I went up there and I was, you know, old enough to actually begin doing things. And um, I had tried to navigate some of these things within my church, a Presbyterian church I was growing up in. And I had a little bit of the sense of it all, but I really didn't have a model. I didn't really have mentors. I didn't really have, you know, comrades, if I can use that word. Um, yeah, I still, there's still some of the most important people in my life. And presumably, as you brought this back to your community in Jackson, Mississippi, did you meet with some resistance? And, and how did you address that resistance? Well, it turned out to not be that much resistance because a little more than half of the white students left the public schools when they were desegregated. So the white attendance dropped by more than 50%. And so the parents and the students that would have been most resistant to integration left hmm. and started uh, private academies, mostly run by local churches and by a group called the White Citizens Council. And um, so those of us that were left, half of the whites and, and then the black students, you know, helped children. I mean, it was okay. Nobody really tried to stop us. Mm -hmm. And from high school, uh, you went to Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. As you have told me, it was not a name that you knew, not a place you no, I didn't know where it was. <laughs> but um, it was great. I mean, I got involved in the 
campus social service group called Phillips Brooks House. That was the main thing I did besides my schoolwork while I was I was the president of it my final year. Again, it was this kind of all-consuming experience of um, not all-consuming because I, you know, you had to study, but it was the dominant thing in my life other than school was trying to continue that feeling and that sense of doing something that was, I don't know how I would have put it at the time, I guess just trying to make positive change in the world. Anyway, I was completely wrapped up in this. I remember thinking when I was 16 or 17, somebody said, oh, well, you have to take time to make friends and, you know, have hobbies and, you know, have a social world. And I remember thinking to myself, somebody might have told me this, but I remember thinking to myself, well, that's not really necessary. All the friends I'll need, I'll have doing this work. Hmm. So I couldn't think of any way I'd rather spend my time. So it was, every, it was all consuming for me. And uh, it was during those four years of college, too. So. Mm -hmm. So you had this passion to do this work. Was there a philosophy or a theology or a spirituality that you drew on to help reinforce and deepen your commitment? Yeah. Until I got to college, it was, I would say, a kind of Christian faith commitment. My mother was the instrumental person for me in this. Um, in Christ, there is no east or west, in him no south or north. All of the biblical teachings that say that we need each other as human beings, and, and that was it for me. I mean, I I would have thought of it as a a Christian, I guess, vocation or something. And then, of course, my Catholic friends they brought a lot. Of, I'm not Catholic, but in some ways it just didn't even matter. Seminarian, I think of him as, as an adult. He probably wasn't more than 19 or 20 years old himself. He sent me a card on some occasion and it said, um, "Who you are is God's gift to you." What you become is your gift to God. And that was that was it for me. That's what I thought. That was everything I thought. Now, in college, um, a tutor was walking down the middle of Harvard Yard, the main yard area. And it so happens that if you look to your right, you'll see Widener Library, one of the biggest college libraries in the world. And if you look to your left, you see Memorial Church, which is the campus church. And uh, this guy said to me, you know, you can go into one building or the other, but you cannot go into both. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. And uh, it made a huge impression on me. And really, that and a few other things, what I was reading, it really, I guess, unmoored me in some ways from that faith mm -hmm. anger. So it became a little more secular for me, you know, kind of ideological in terms of equality and so on. But didn't quite feel that it changed that much in terms of the work, but in terms of the inner feeling about it, I'm still mad at that guy for telling me that. Actually. <laughs> well, and uh, I, I was in a similar place, maybe a little bit earlier than you, and that same kind of attitude prevailed. Either it's one or the other. What was interesting for me is the anti-war movement brought both together, and that was really... And really of course, the civil rights movement did too. Good grief. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how dare him tell me that? Anyway, I'm sure he was a sincere guy. And for him, I guess it was true. It sounds like you've been wrestling with that dichotomy ever since. Ever since. Ever mm -hmm. since, man. Yeah. So you graduate from college, uh, get an advanced degree. And over the course of time, you start the Institute for American Values. And what was prompting you? What was inviting you to move in that direction? 
for three years after school, I was a VISTA volunteer and community organizer. I was working in a couple of cities in Virginia and a couple of cities in Massachusetts, kind of based on the Saul Alinsky model, although this wasn't his actual organization. Alinsky's model was rub raw the source of discontent, <laughs> you know, hit the grassroots level. And um, he was kind of a polarizer, Alinsky was, you know, he, he had a target, and he went after them. But I did that. I really got a lot out of it and, and learned an awful lot. But I came to feel it wasn't quite right for me in some ways. There was a kind of macho kind of, you know, everything was about power. Everything was about defeating your enemies and targeting them and making demands. And, um, a lot of that I thought was good. Some of it I didn't like so much. It seemed a little spiritually shallow or something. It didn't seem to take into account the higher values that people aspired to. And I also thought that it really only appealed to, in terms of people who were doing it, only appealed to people with sort of left of center political views. Hmm. And I'm thinking, well, why is that? Why would that be? So um, I started this little think tank called Institute for American Values, a very grand name for a thing that only consisted of me and a wish. You know, <laughs> my fiance at the time, now my wife, she said, oh, you're going to start a think tank to like rethink liberalism. Well, have you ever done anything work in a think tank? No. Who have you told about that you have this plan? Well, just you. Have any money? No. Know anybody who has any money? No. Have anybody that's interested in working with you to start this new think tank? No. But to her credit, actually, amazingly enough, she said, well, how can I help? <laughs> it was really amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no means of employment. No, it was just totally just a dreamy thing. And for four years, I met with more or less complete failure. Everything I tried, nothing worked. And I learned that if you start something new, you have to be prepared to suffer failure, a lot of it, and rejection a lot. That's what I learned. But eventually it began to work. I began to recruit scholars. And uh, the idea was to bring together progressive and conservative scholars to get a fresh take on issues related to civil society. And we define civil society as, you know, not the individual and not the state, but all that thick web of relationships in between families, religious communities, civic groups. So I spent, I don't know, 25 years doing that. Started this little thing and eventually built it up to, ultimately, we had a staff of about 15. We were writing books and having conferences and doing think tanky things, but we wanted to connect with grassroots. So there was a real effort both to bring together different perspectives on issues, but also connect it to grassroots activities that it could be helpful, you know, including some of my community organizing friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a large focus, as I understand, on family. And you wrote a book called Fatherless America, which had some reaction to it that created a stir. And at one point, as I understand it, uh, you were re resistant to the idea of same-sex marriage. And over the course of time, you shifted your position and were more accepting of it. Can you explain and describe how that journey happened? Well, I'd spent, you know, a decade being a jukebox for the importance of fathers. I'd written a book about it. I was traveling around the country. I mean, you didn't even have to put a nickel in. I just go. Give my speech. My children used to make fun of me, like they imitated how I would talk about this. It was all I was doing, you know, completely absorbed with it. Young father, myself, young kids. And um, 
part of my argument was that fathers needed to be connected to mothers. You know, they, there needed to be a bond between mother and father. So I, you know, have the best environment for children. The name we gave to that bond was marriage. So the mother, father, love each other, two-parent home. That was what I was running around. And believe it or not, it had some controversy to it because, well, are you blaming single mothers or you're, you know, doing this, doing that? So anyway, you could stay busy all the time advocating for this, which I did. Then when gay marriage came along, I really didn't want to, I didn't have an opinion much. I didn't, I experienced it as an intrusion on what I was trying to do. But then I realized that it was a dominant issue for many, many people, gay as well as straight, for a whole generation of people, including straight young people, it was kind of the moral issue for them. Mm. You know, like nothing was more important on a moral level than permitting uh, gay and lesbian people to marry the person they loved. And it got to the point where even if I would say, I don't want to talk about it, there would be articles saying, why doesn't this guy want to talk about it? I mean, you know, like silence was no longer an option. You couldn't duck it, not in my world. So I ended up taking a year to read and think about it all. And I wrote a book called The Future of Marriage, in which I said, there are reasons to be in for gay marriage and there are reasons to be against it. And the reasons to be against it outweigh the reasons for it. I tried to spell that argument out in a book. And uh, I became, just became all drawn into it. Well, I didn't even want to be. Ended up speaking about it all around the country. I ended up as the state witness for a California trial called Proposition 8. Mm-hmm. Some of the people listening to your podcast will remember Proposition 8. At that time, it was the most prominent court case uh, on gay marriage. And I was the I was big witness, you know, for the state, which meant not gay marriage. It was mm-hmm. complicated because it was a referendum, but that's how yeah. I cashed out. Yeah. And so I was denounced hundreds of times a day on social media, mocked and ridiculed. Frank Rich, columns the New York Times, wrote not one, not two, but three articles specifically devoted to calling me every name he could think of. My children read these, heard about this. So I really, for someone who wanted to bring together people on both sides, I would say I blew it. You know, that was just, (laughs) that was not a good outing. Caught up in this issue and um, I was saying what I thought and I was saying some things I still believe, but it was really a firsthand experience with what it means to be in a all out culture war. Mm. where the purpose of each side is to destroy the other side. And each side thinks that they're the ones being aggressed upon. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I learned. In a culture where both sides think we're the innocent party, these other people are coming at us with all their aggression and hostility. Both sides think that sincerely. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up changing my mind on gay marriage, as did many Americans. What prompted that? I uh, got to be friends during this traveling the country with a guy named Jonathan Rausch, mm-hmm. who had written a book called uh, Gay Marriage, Why It's Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America. And he's a gay man. He, he was a prominent you know, spokesperson for gay marriage. And we began kind of debating, but we eventually, through sort of happenstance, really getting stuck in the rain after one of these debates and having nothing to do but for a few hours, but talk to one another, we became friends. And 
he never he never gave me any information I didn't already have. He never showed me a study I hadn't read, and he certainly didn't call me names ever. Mm. Unlike seemed like everybody else in the world, mm. he actually was just a good guy. And I met his partner Michael, who's now his husband. And um, I was in Washington three days ago. I spent two nights with them in their home. I mean, he's mm. a one of my closest friends now. Helped start Braver Angels. Mm. Anyway. Um, at a certain point, I just sort of realized I had changed my mind on it. And the reason I changed my mind was because of that friendship with him helped me see that there was a kind of lived experience of gay and lesbian people that was just seemed to be more meaningful to me than all my reading and theorizing mm-hmm. and I had a kind of a thick coat of learning, of theory, of speculative, you know, what's going to happen if this that, and the other. And I just don't think I was taking into account as much as I should have the actual experiences that people were going through. Mm-hmm. So I changed my mind. And the lesson for that for me was people don't change their mind because of being given new data, usually. It's not like somebody, oh, have you read this book? You know, you this will change. Well, it, no, no. People change their mind based on relationships, I think, usually. And that moved so, you? Then you... You wrote about that, your change of heart. I wrote about that. And then all the people who had thought I was a good guy decided I was a bad guy and that I had thrown them under the bus and that I had changed my mind for money. One thing I learned is if you're in the public and you change your mind about something, no one will believe. And I mean, no one will believe that you sincerely changed your mind. You had a motive, you know, Um so that happened. So I think I might be the only person I know who was widely vilified by both sides of that debate. And uh, the Institute for American Values fell apart. The board quit. I had to sell my apartment. I mean, it was a huge thing. It was just like a body blow on the practical side of life. It kind of put me out of work. And it was a serious change in my kind of material conditions of living because of the too, blow up. Must have been painful emotionally. Yeah, it was. And for my family, it was. Although, you know, nobody threatened me physically. And there are people on the gay rights side of things who suffered a lot more than I did in this. Mm -hmm. Also, really, what can they really do? You know what I mean? You lose some money. People fuss at you. I mean, it's not great. I wouldn't want to wish anybody else to have to go through that. But you just try to keep living your life as best you can. Mm. And then... I don't know how long after that, we had the 2016 election, and you had the sense that polarization is almost a disease that's afflicting the country. And you made a phone call to two people, David Lapp and Bill Doherty, who are credited along with you as the founders of first Better Angels, now Braver Angels. What was the energy, what was the feeling in you that led you to make those phone calls, and what were you hoping for? Well, when the Institute for American Values collapsed, and remember, even though we failed on the gay marriage issue, of course we failed. But for most of the time, the idea was to bring together the two, you know, left and right. And it was a searing experience in how the country was becoming more and more polarized, not just on this issue, but on a whole bunch of issues. And so anytime you try to talk about anything, uh, it just seemed to get caught up in this paradigm of rancor and polarization. I was with some conservative friends of mine in the summer of 2016, and I asked them, are any of you voting for Trump? 
if he gets the nomination? And they all said no. And I said, uh, these are conservative. These are like serious conservatives, some of them well-known conservatives. And I said, well, do you know anybody who you think is going to vote for Trump? Like, you know anybody who's out there like advocating Trump? And they all said, no, no, not what? No. So I thought, well, now that's interesting. I ended up more or less from that day, I got in my car and I drove around for three weeks, more or less aimlessly in the southeastern part of the United States, going into public places where I knew, you know, I'd find some likely <laughs> people who might be pro-Trump. And I would walk up to them, total stranger, and ask them if I could talk about their political views. And um, they were all nice and all let me do it. And so I interviewed many, many people who liked Trump and, and were happy to tell me why. And that, that was kind of an experience that led me to believe that, fit grief, this country is really, really divided. I mean, at a very profound level. So after the election, I called my friend David Lapp, who I'd known a long time. He lived in, he still lives in Warren County in Ohio. That county went 70% for Trump. I said, David, how are y'all? He's a big conservative. How are y'all doing? Oh, you know, doing okay. People are in pretty good mood here. And uh, I lived at the time in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He said, well, how are people in Manhattan? I said, man, people are like walking around like zombies. I mean, they just, you know, look like they look like they've all just been shot in the stomach with a shotgun. I mean, people are just dazed, angry, depressed. What on earth has happened to this country I thought I lived in? And so we made a commitment right there on the phone that we would try to pull together in Warren County, Ohio, South Lebanon. 10 people who had just voted for Clinton and 10 who had just voted for Trump would spend a weekend together and see if we could talk to one another rather than at one another, to at least have the conversation. Because we'd just gone through this polarizing campaign, but nobody was actually talking to one another. It was just shouting and anger. And so we, that's what we did. And then we called William Doherty from the University of Minnesota, who was a genuine expert in meeting design, chairing meetings, and he designed that weekend workshop for us and came and ran it with, with me, but he was the lead moderator. And so we did that three weeks after the election. It was just a transformative experience. I mean, some of the people who were at that first workshop are still involved in Braver Angels today as leaders, and it was really something. It just made us feel better about ourselves, the country, our neighbors, you know, everything. So that was the start of it. We didn't have a plan. In my mind, the only point was to see what happened if you put these people in a room together, whether they could actually talk to one another. That was it. There was no other plan beyond that. But because it was so powerful, I don't know, we've done thousands of these things since then. So. And the term better angels, drawn from Lincoln's first inaugural address, when did that surface? I know it's changed to braver angels now, and there's a reason for that. But where did better angels come from in terms of uh, naming the organization, the movement that and the role that Lincoln plays for you in this process. Yeah, I've, all, I've been a lifelong student of the Civil War. I studied in college with the famous Civil War scholar, also from Mississippi, named David Donald. He told me one time, he said, well, he said, I've noticed that many Southern people are very interested in Lincoln, but I have not noticed any Northern people interested in Jefferson Davis. And that is a true fact. Um, but I was just obsessed with Lincoln, still am in some ways, and think uh, his temperament, his temperament was what may have saved the country hmm. during that time. Four weeks away from the firing on Fort Sumter that began the Civil War, the first inaugural was a plea, 
for the country to stay together as literally it was breaking apart. And he said at the end, he said, we will swell the course of the union when again we are touched as surely we will be by the better angels of our nature. And of course, many, many generations of Americans have been moved by that phrase. In the first draft of the speech, his Secretary of State, William Seward, had him call upon the guardian angel of the nation to save the nation. You can actually see Lincoln at the copy where he scratches out the phrase guardian angel and says better angels of our nature. And I think what he means is that ultimately it's something within us, mm. something within us, north and south, something within us that we have to find. And there's not a an entity outside of us in the sky that's going to save us. It's it's something within us. I don't not I don't want to you know. You're the bishop. You tell me the theology of this, but I think that's what the I think that's what Lincoln meant. So I thought, what better name for an organization than um, than Better Angels and uh, uh, just a piece of poetry from our history where he was trying to call upon both sides of a terrible conflict to find what was best in them to bring to each other. And I thought that was just perfect. Mm. And he's appealing to the better angels of our nature. That name had already been taken by another nonprofit group and was changed to braver angels. And given increased polarization, we need to be even braver than we were. But to me, and I think to you, braver angels has become an organization with affiliates all over the country and thousands of members. And as you mentioned earlier, thousands of conversations. But I'd like you to speak to it as you see it as a movement, and as that evolve from Lincoln's challenge to the country, this notion of movement? Can you speak to that? Well, most meaningful changes that happen in the country, you know, go back to the civil rights movement or the conservative movements such as gun rights, other things, they don't happen because one organization wants a change, and they don't happen because one big leader wants a change. They happen because the people, the society, something begins to generate within the society where many, many people come to their independent conclusion that there needs to be this change. We want to work together. So it's not because they're getting paid to be staff people. It's not because there's some hierarchical structure organizing everybody, but there's a kind of a loose, largely spontaneous movement of people to step into a role of citizenship that they had not been in before around a shared outlook. And um, that's always been the inspiration for me. So when it comes to polarization, yes, we're an organization and we do a lot of good work, I think, but we'll never be big enough or strong enough or important enough to turn the tide in the country. The only chance we have of really beginning to challenge the problem at the scale that it now exists is with the social movement, with lots of people, lots of different organizations, lots of different networks on their own, really. I mean, there'll be some encouragement, there'll be some inspiration, but on their own, deciding that this is important enough to step into this and to become involved in the way that they can. From the beginning, we always wanted Braver Angels to be that kind of organization, you know, that could help model some of the aspects of a social movement and ultimately help to spark one. So for example, 90% of our work is done by unpaid volunteers. We have a flat authority structure. Nobody, including me, nobody can really tell anybody what to do. 
we have guardrails, we have some structures, but mostly it's just people out there doing things. Our moderators, we don't pay them and they don't have to be highly trained. There's a simple training so that a person with moderate skills at leading a session can successfully lead one of our workshops. So we consciously designed a model that could spread, that didn't require a lot of money, that ordinary people, if you want to use that term, could step into the role of leader and 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 be successful. So that non-corporate, loosely structured on purpose mode of working has been our mode since the beginning, for which a lot of people like, why are you doing this? You know, and the whole idea is that um Eventually, we can become not just one organization, but one organization among many others that are trying to show the better angels of their nature when it comes to this issue. And the assumption is that if people live in the better angels of their nature, depolarization will become less of an issue than it is now, because we're able to hear one another, respect one another, be civil to one another. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this stuff has to register in institutional change. Our institutions have developed rules, most many of them, that promote polarization. They thrive on polarization. Many of our major media organizations have a financial model that depends upon polarization. Our political system fosters polarization and punishes efforts at reaching across the aisle in many, many ways. So in order really to have the change we want, we will have to see institutional change of a fairly meaningful nature. At the same time, how do you get that institutional change? How does that come about? Well, you could have a conference and you could write papers saying the importance of these changes, and plenty of people do that. But I think ultimately there has to be a groundswell from the people themselves that says this is something that we want and need and demand. So that citizen-to-citizen work is really essential as a foundation to call for institutional change. I mean, again, if you go back to the civil rights movement, I know this is meaningful to you too. Yes, eventually the Voting Rights Act was passed and eventually some major legislation on the Civil Rights Act of 1965, but that was preceded by years and years of local meetings and thousands of African-American churches across the country and the mobilization, you know, students going to sit in at, you know, Woolworths, bus boycotts. I mean, very grassroots things that didn't involve trying to write letters to Congress or anything like that. It was just the basis of social change of this nature has to come from, you know, we the people before you're likely to get those institutional changes that we also need. Hmm. I see and hear a thread from your youth in Mississippi to your days at Harvard to VISTA at the Institute of American Values, <laughs> Braver Angels. There's a thread. How is that the same and how is it different? These values that uh, you can trace back to your earliest memories. Well, a person is never probably really the best interpreter of their own lives, you know? I don't really think I'm the best person to understand my life uh, in terms of the mark one makes or doesn't make on things. Having said that, to me, it only feels like I've ever done the one thing. Hmm. The thing I started doing when I was 
it captured my heart and soul when I was 16 years old. It doesn't feel like I've ever done anything but that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never had a regular job. I've never applied for a job. I've never had a boss. I never gave a thought to what, what is a career. I've, I've just only thought this one way. And despite some spectacular failures, especially around the gay marriage thing, but no, it all feels continuous to me. Mm-hmm. I would say the big change for me was when I was younger, I was far more personally combative. Like I would pick public fights with people who I thought were wrong and write articles, you know, calling them out. And I was just more combative uh, in that kind of Southern Scotch Irish, you know, I'll get mad in a minute kind of style, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I think as I've gotten older, I think I've softened out a bit and, and tried to see that that combative style may be appropriate in some situations, but trying to be a bit kinder. Mm-hmm. to people that otherwise you'd be tempted to be angry at. I try to go in that direction more now mm-hmm. than I did when I was younger. Mm. I think that's the big change. And also there were times when I felt like I leaned more politically to the left and times where I felt like I leaned more politically to the right. Now I I just hardly ever think in those categories at all. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. the other change. Mm-hmm. But in general, I feel like I'm the same, only more so. You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels like more or less the same aspiration. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I may have mentioned this to you before. One of my favorite definitions of vocation comes from a novel by Gail Godwin about two Episcopal priests who are married to each other. And one says to the other, something is your vocation if it keeps making more of you. Uh, to live well, into the nice. fullness of, of, of who you are. That's really nice. And you have mentioned some of the failures uh, that you've had. What are some of your deepest joys that you've had over the course of time in this work? It's really been more the beginning and then now. It's funny you would ask that question because I've really thought a lot about it. And there are two times when I've taken the most joy One was those first several years with the Mississippi Community Service Corps. Then when I moved to Virginia, my senior year started the Virginia Community Service Corps. That sense of just the sheer joy of it, just the Mm -hmm. sheer joy of it. I like didn't want to do anything else. You know, like why would I want to take a break from something that is this great? Um, And then 40 or 45 years later, I'm doing what I'm doing now which is the same thing, just joy and just joyful. And what I think unites those two ends of the spectrum is that in both cases, there weren't enemies. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was just trying to do something positive. It wasn't yelling at anybody. It wasn't saying you're bad. It wasn't, I want to call you out and have an argument. It wasn't like my idea is better than your idea. Whereas in the middle period, I was more like, I had an argument and there were people who disagreed and I wanted to have an argument with them. So in some ways there were opponents, there were enemies. You were trying to, to use a politician's framework words, you were trying to, you were fighting, you were fighting for your cause. The beginning and now, I'm not, I'm not fighting anybody. And it just feels so much personally better, you know? I'm not saying that there isn't a time for fighting, but for me personally, those are the times when I felt closest to really feeling fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Of seeing the humanity and the 
I would add potentially the divinity in, in everybody else and drawing on that, drawing it out, allowing it to emerge, and certainly Braver Angels uh, seeks to do that. Dorothy Day, the Catholic worker, she said um, in the Bower, you know, working with people who had had a million setbacks in their lives, she said, our goal is to see Jesus's face in every person. That was mm -hmm. her way of putting it. Not everybody's cup of tea to put it that way. But I'll tell you, that hit me like a thunderbolt when I first heard it. It's the dignity of the person where you might miss it. If you weren't looking, if you didn't have your eyes trained in some way to see it, you might miss it. That's the kind of satisfaction that I don't think it gets any deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like we've gone over a professional lifespan, but have gone to great depths. And I really appreciate your telling your story without airbrushing it and <laughs> to really get to the essence of who you are, what your passions are, what your commitments have been and still are, and the failures and the joys that sort of uh, go hand in glove one with another. It's yeah. been an honor to, uh, to hear this, David. Well, you've had an important role in my life, Mark, as a friend and teacher. So it's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reconciliation Roundtable. When people are open and vulnerable, as David was, it not only gives us a window into a person's life, but also helps to open the doors of our own. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit markbeckwith.net to stay up to date with new episodes, blog content, and other news. Please, if you could, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It helps new listeners to find us.